1: you know, if Labor gets up, the entire of mainland Australia will be red. There'll be Labor governments in every state and territory, and it'll just be Tassie that still um, is a conservative government. Years ago, I was working in the New South Wales opposition, and there was not a single red government anywhere. So these things go in ways, but it would be a high tide mark for Labor and power if they do get over the line. Hi,
0: I'm Paul Carp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent, filling in for Catherine Murphy, who's away. And I'm joined by the Executive Director of Essential, Peter Lewis, which of course means that uh, today is one of our regular polling chats where we're going to delve into the Guardian Essential poll in order to find out, you know, which way the worm has turned this week on some of the major policies. This week we're going to be discussing... A fresh announcement, the nuclear submarine acquisition under the AUKUS Alliance and the voice referendum. So how about we start off with, uh, with AUKUS, Peter? Is the Australian public on the same page as its political leadership when it comes to acquiring nuclear submarines?
1: Yeah, g'day, Paul. It's really interesting because I've got to say it's been a raucous, orcus caucus over the last couple of weeks. And it feels like the caucus is made up of a lot of the media mask heads that may not include The Guardian, plus a bipartisan political consensus. And um, obviously there has been a growing acceptance that Australia is going all in for another hundred years with the US empire, and that's going to be expressed with this deal to bring in some subs, integrate our technology, and join the nuclear family. So, what does the Australian public think? We asked three questions this week, and it was hard because this cut went in the field on the Monday. And I think it was interesting because that debate played out in real time last week, didn't it?
0: Some people would have had the benefit of Paul Keating's thoughts, and others will have just had the benefit of the announcement. Well, let's start
1: with the numbers. We have to get to numbers at some stage. So let's start with, are people on board with the announcement and the price tag? And we should also say if people are listening at this at home and they want to play along, essentialreport.com.au. We divided it into three so that we could sort of split that up. So Australia needs nuclear-powered subs and it's not worth paying for them 27%. Australia needs nuclear subs and it is worth paying that amount to get them 26 So between that, there's 52% who will say, you know, we want subs. Half of them think it's worth the money, half of them think it's not. Another 28% says Australia does not need nuclear-powered submarines, and 19% are unsure. So it is not nearly as tight a consensus as we see um, maybe in some of our headlines. Um, Interestingly, also, that particularly amongst Labor voters, it is a bit messy. It's 26 for the subs being worth the money, 29 we could get, we, we we should have them but it's not worth the money, and 28 saying we don't need them at all. And I guess, you know, the, the coalition voters are more on side, the green voters, unsurprisingly, are less on side. It's almost like a self-wedge for Labor on this one, and I think it is, you know, with some of the commentary from the left this week, I think it's a it's It's a difficult position for labour.
0: but the the labour numbers do track uh, very closely to what the total number of voters. So yes, they've got the coalition on their right flank, their voters more likely to say it's worth paying anything to get the submarines and the and the Greens voters on their left flank more likely to say that we don't need nuclear-powered submarines, but the labour voters themselves are, are tracking the um the the overall mood maybe they think they've split the difference nicely.
1: Yeah, but the point is there is no consensus here. So we we are having a public debate as if there is a consensus and it is split three ways between pay for the subs, have the subs but don't have them, or don't have them at all. So either side can actually build a majority depending on the question they ask there, whether it, the question is about um, the presence of the subs or the cost being prohibited plus not needing them. And so it just creates this wicked political problem. We asked a couple of other national security questions, which I think also provide interesting context. One, again, which is a long-term benchmark, is actually around attitudes to China. And we've been asking this over a number of years. And we give people, again, three options. Australia's relationship with China is a positive opportunity to be realised. Australia's relationship with China is a complex relationship to be managed and Australia's relationship with China is a threat to be confronted. Now, we've always had the majority of people going that middle ground. And I guess part of the point of this question is not to turn this into a binary and leave room for the complexity. But that number has actually gone up over the last year. Um, And that's been in the context of all the noise um, around Australia's relationship with China. And those that see it as a threat to be confronted have actually dropped six points down to 20%. So you look at the debate that's being played out in the national capital with the bipartisan support of both sides of politics. I'm not saying that either side is saying they're doing this because China is a threat to be confronted, but that is the subtext to, and particularly in the media reporting, not The Guardian, but we know some of the other...
0: Our red mask have been the, going the red hard, threat,
1: red alert, red terror, anything with red in it, and it doesn't reflect our national mood, which is a bit more about the way you know Penny Wong's been going about her business, trying to sort of embrace the complexity and the nuance. And I just feel that for Labor, they're trying to do this work in terms of getting the diplomatic relations back on track and this is like a bullhorn that was not of their making but it was a political calculation to end up in this space. To
0: play devil's advocate, perhaps uh, respondents are turned off by the word confronted in, you know, China is a threat to be confronted. Maybe uh, the government's view is that they're a threat to be deterred and so you, you get the nuclear submarines not to confront but to deter. But, yeah, the um, I thought your column crediting uh, the work that Penny Wong has done, resetting the tone of the relationship was very interesting because that was actually the question that I asked Paul Keating was does the apparent improvement in the relationship between Australia and China since the election of the Albanese government, does that count for anything? And, you know, doesn't that show that we can still have our AUKUS alliance and still improve the political and trade relationship? And he wasn't having any of it. What did you get, uh, naive? Naive, but, like, in the scheme of things, everyone else
1: got a lot worse (laughs) at the press gallery (laughs) that day. You weren't trying hard enough for I, th- I thought that was fine, yeah. <laughs> what was the vibe in there? It was interesting because I was watching and obviously there was Laura Tingle and, and Keating in Sydney beaming in, but it was like you were all going up and lining up and getting behind <laughs> getting behind the um, lanyard and then just being shot by the former PM.
0: Yeah, I guess the criticism of Peter Harcher uh, and the confrontation uh, with Matthew Knott, who wrote the Sydney Morning Herald and Ages coverage, to some extent... Was expected, but then it was just completely uh, brutal, um, you know, uncharitable assessment of the quality of questioning that uh, that other people asked in, in a way that I don't think did uh, a lot of credit to his argument. Like he probably could have answered the question about the threat posed by China that Liv Caisley from Sky asked, he probably could have answered that without calling it a dumb question. Um, and so he sort of didn't do himself any favours. And it was, was really the, the best and worst of Keating. And we we all sort of knew that certainly by the end of the list that we were up for a shellacking when, when we got up. And the, the temptation was just to ignore the, the direction to stay on stage while he answered, but just to deliver and and, and get off so that he was shouting at an empty podium. <laughs> but we resisted that and stood there and took it.
1: <laughs> it. Like, for all of that discomfort, and I think it probably wasn't the best day of, you know, anyone's professional life because a lot of people have always respected Paul Keating, um, he did get the debate going and it had been a source of frustration in the cheap seats to be watching it with... and. I'm not casting any aspersions on the work The Guardian's been doing, but the wall of noise had been almost triumphalist in the way that the whole deal had been portrayed. And with bipartisan support, there wasn't much contra going on. So um, I think it has shifted the atmosphere a little bit. I think he could have scored the
0: hits, you know. He could have said, worst deal in the world, uh, worst Labor government security decision uh, since uh, Billy Hughes attempted conscription. He could have said, you know, Anthony Albanese was the only one paying uh, at that at that announcement in the US. Uh, like, he could have said all those things and, and directed it at the political leadership. But I guess a large part of his point was that the media has enabled the unnuanced uh, view of China's threat. He just returned fire in a
1: similarly unnuanced nuanced way. Um, do you think this story, it feels to me it's been this profound moment in Australia setting its geopolitical direction really for the next five decades. Is it a bit like climate change where it's a really big thing but the story moves on and this week it's about something else or do you think this remains part of the national discussion in a way that it hasn't been previously?
0: Well, there there were a few notes of dissent after the Keating address. Doug Cameron, Peter Garrett, on Monday of this week, Josh Wilson became the first Labor MP currently in Parliament to speak out about it. But I mean, already by Tuesday's caucus meeting, there were a couple of questions, but they weren't especially pointed. It wasn't a caucus boil over to face three pretty basic questions. So... I mean, I think the difficulty is going to be what are the pinch points where there's any chance to reevaluate this decision when Labour and the coalition are locked in? what would what would Parliament have to look like in the next term of Parliament um, to affect any change to this, uh, you know, an enlarged teal and green crossbench demanding of a minority Labor or coalition government that they would abandon this huge deal? Like, it just seems terribly un- unlikely and
1: difficult to to overturn. Although the other point that you made this week, and sorry, I feel like I'm interviewing you, um, there, it was the 20th anniversary of the decision to go to war in Iraq, as you put in one of your columns this week, Paul. And it's interesting, there is a little bit of a drumbeat, probably a bad term, for the powers of government to declare war, to have to go to parliament and not be purely via executive. And I don't know, did that get an airing much this week?
0: When was the last time you polled that actually? I'd love to see. I know, I would have
1: I would I wish we'd thought about it. Often when with a polling we're running and we're saying I should have I should have had that 20 years in my calendar, but it's one that we can probably throw out if the um defense debate keeps going.
0: Yeah, I I think you should because it's um it's one of those things that I think when people hear it they think it's a common sense proposition and they and they go for it and then their you know political masters have to say, "Oh no, no, we couldn't we couldn't allow that." I mean, I was at Iraq War demos, and I remember it as, a, as an important moment, not that it changed um, the political leadership's mind. Um, should we move on to the voice? It's interesting that there was a slide in support uh, for the voice survey.
1: Indeed. it It's still majority support for the proposition. Again, we've been pegging this since last August, but it's been really steady at about 65.35 up until this month, and it's dropped 59.41. So that's a six-point drop. But more interesting, it's where the drop looks like it's coming from. In terms of voting intention, um, Green voters have dropped their support from the high 80s to 77s. There's been a 12% drop amongst Green voters. Labor's kind of steady, coalition's up a little bit. And the minor party independents have also dropped 10 points. It's also dropped amongst younger voters and women. So progressive female younger voters are the ones that are shifting from both the hard yes and the soft yes columns. Now, there's a couple of things going on, obviously. The first is that the yes case is still, and I think the strategy is still very much to secure the bipartisan support, and that's opening up a bit of space amongst people on the left, not just the Lydia Thoughts but other groups that are concerned of where the the actual proposition is going to land. But I think it also speaks to the fact the campaign hasn't really got going yet and um, they're not great numbers. They're a sense of that this isn't a given and if people want to see the change to the constitution that would recognise first people via going to parliament and or the executive, which is something else that hasn't been determined yet, They need to get, you know, get their wheels on.
0: But noting those young, progressive and female had the biggest declines in supports, it was off a high base and those are still the groups that are most likely to support the voice. But what do you think might have caused the support to drop? It was in all age groups, I mean, particularly in the 18 to 34 group, but it it did drop in
1: all groups. So, look, I think while... That January was very noisy, both with the Invasion Day protests and Dutton's sort of attempt to um, undermine the project by drilling in detail that isn't actually part of the proposition. Maybe that's washed through. We didn't pick it up when we polled straight after Australia Day, but it's just feels like there's that two-thirds of the population that wants to say yes. There are just now doubts emerging both on that sense of how's it going to work but also is it going to make a difference. And so it really, from where I'm sitting, probably puts a bit of um, asset on the government and those campaigning for yes to really, I'm not going to say um, prosecute the case, it's more about giving the community the information, the tools they need to do what I think most people deep down want to do, which is to walk forward.
0: What's the risk here for people that want to see a constitutional change? Is the overall number continues to decline or among particular groups? Or is it perhaps about uh, where the opposition is? Could there be, you know, three states that say no?
1: Yeah, you know, you're right. There's a double majority. So you've got to win a majority of voters in a majority of states. You'd still say at 59-41 it's well positioned. Um, There's another school of thought, though, that says you want to win really well so you can open up the way for long-term changes like treaty. Um, Where the drops have occurred, bearing in mind our numbers are not huge samples in some of the smaller states have been in Queensland and WA, Um, it's pretty stable in New South Wales and South Australia. In fact, it's gone up a, a tad in Victoria. So we don't have enough numbers to poll Tassie. That's one state that's a concern. But so if you've got Tassie, Queensland, and WA, you've actually got to win one of those three states yeah. um, and hold the other three to, to secure a change in the constitution.
0: Yeah, I, I saw uh, big majorities, especially in New South Wales and Victoria, and, and just thought, Maybe the no side just has to camp out in Queensland WA and TAS to try and block it, but uh, perhaps we shouldn't read too much into into
1: the state by state. Yeah, I think, you know, there's going to be a number of different campaigns going on, but the most important one is an education campaign just to give people space to understand the issues, ask questions and listen. Um, I think if everyone took the time to listen or read the statement from the heart, it would probably be a no-brainer. It's just, you know, in an attention deficit world, how you explain this, collect um, enough of the majority to make it um, a natural step forward is the real challenge.
0: And only voters in one state will be going to the polls on Saturday, but you also were asking about the preferred Premier in the New South Wales state election. Did people... Favor uh, Dominic Perrottet or, or Chris Minns?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty unfair rating the, un- the the preferred premier because it's actually one where one guy's in the job, or in, in New South Wales they are both guys, and the other's hoping to get the job. But it's, normally, if if a sitting premier is not the preferred premier, then they're basically toast. Perrottet's it's kind of third, third, third. Perrottet's thirty six. Chris Minns, who's the Labor opposition leader, for those outside New South Wales, is on thirty three. 32 undecided. This is kind of both a really interesting election and kind of a bit of a yawn at the same time in New South Wales in that the Liberal National Coalition has been in power for 12 years, They got rid of the previous Labor government that had been in there for 16 years. Probably the best advertisement against having a government in power for 16 years is the performance of the previous Labor government when they did win that fourth term, which was a bit of a fluke because it was in the context of the Rights at Work campaign 2007. It was about six months before Kevin Rudd um, came to power on the back of John Howard's work choices and the It's Time Factor, so there was a big mood for change. Um And it was, you know, by all objective criteria, an absolutely terrible government of which some of its leading lights ended up serving time in jail. Um, This time around it's almost like a reverse in that while four terms seems a long time, there does not feel a sense of anger in the room, which you would normally associate with big swings against the government. And I put that down to the performance of Anthony Albanese. He's kind of since he's come into power in May taken the anger out of the room. So he's actually done the Labor opposition a disservice by calming the show down. Dominic Perrottet isn't a Scott Morrison. He is a lot more likable. He's actually been taking stands on issues that you would not expect a social conservative to take to take stands on. He's got quite a progressive treasurer who has not opened up the same doors for Teal independent candidates around climate change, although they are having a crack in a number of those seats. But from what we can see, It's more likely than not probably to be a minority Labor government. They've got to pick up about nine seats to get a majority. That seems like a long haul at the moment, but um, I think, you know, it's around the 53-47 sort of number that the number of polls I've been seeing has been putting Labor ahead. I get the vibe out of the Labor camp that they're feeling good about it. Um, The Libs, they're actually underneath their their office is a bit of a mess and they've struggled to pre-select candidates in a lot of seats. So, Yeah, um, about four more sleeps till that one, depending when people are listening to the pod. But, you know, if Labor gets up, the entire of mainland Australia will be red, if people still call Labor governments red. But there'll be Labor governments in every state and territory and it will just be Tassie that still um, is a conservative government. These things move. I can remember the days when um, years ago I was working in the New South Wales opposition and there was not a single red government anywhere. So these things go in ways, but it would be a high tide mark for Labor and power if they do get over the line and probably opens the way up for a bunch of state-federal cooperation, which allows um, the agenda that, to the extent that there is an agenda, particularly on issues like early learning and and climate change and transitions to renewables for state-federal cooperation, to be real.
0: Yeah, I think, so Anthony Albanese has said, you know, obviously I would prefer uh, Chris Minns to be Premier and I'm out campaigning uh, for the Labor opposition. But he has also noted that he gets on well with Don Perrottet and cooperates well with them. So he's trying to avoid uh, that being a dynamic, the, the suggestion that he wants, uh, you know, all of mainland Australia to turn red because that's the only way that governments can cooperate. No, no, he said, Oh, obviously we'll cooperate either way. Uh, he jokingly pointed out, oh, Tasmania's still liberal no matter what happens so you know there's the north island and the south island of australia he he (laughs) joked to give a little shout out to the tasmanians
1: but to that matter even chris minns says that perrottet is a good bloke like it it is the mildest campaign between protagonists i've seen in a long time they're both very affable
0: yes yeah and It was remarkable after the Albanese government was elected watching, um, you know, just in every portfolio in education, in health, the treasurers at all these uh, federal meetings with the state and federal counterparts, that even the coalition members in government in Tasmania and in New South Wales were heaping praise on their new federal Labor counterparts so that they obviously can cooperate across party lines. In terms of like hot predictions for the election, I'm I mean, I'm going to talk heresy and say that there have been individual seat polls showing that Labor's doing quite well in some marginals like Parramatta. And so I wonder whether the good overall uh, results or the close overall results could be masking a inner city holding up well for the Libs because people had a good pandemic and, you know, Western Sydney may be slightly more anti the Libs and will be the place that delivers seats that that tosses them out. So I wonder whether there's that hmm. sort of dynamic going on.
1: Yeah, the, the, it was a big play through the pandemic. Largely, Labor and Chris Minns were supportive of the lockdown measures, but there was a point at which there were separate rules for those that were living in the eastern suburbs, the North Shore, and those that were in full-on lockdown in the western suburbs. And it, it has not been forgotten. One interesting bit of polling we did for your colleague, Michael McGowan, in the New South Wales Bureau, was to check whether various policies were going to make people more or less likely to support one side or the other. And the really interesting thing was the big coalition plan to give every child a savings fund, um, which I think they were calling Kids Super or the Kids Future Fund, actually had double the number of people People saying they'd be more likely to vote for Labor than for the government. So that might be one silver bullet that that is actually turned up to being an own goal. Um, Labor's policies around privatisation, no future privatisation of state assets and scrapping the public wages cap are much more likely to get people voting for Labor than the other side. So I guess at least on the policy debate, Labor's kicking the ball in the right direction.
0: Lower recognition, but the people that had heard of it, it seemed more unambiguously a good thing uh, who'd heard of those Labor policies. I I wonder if they got the bang for the buck they wanted uh, with the Children's uh, Savings Fund. It it reminded me of the super policy that the federal coalition announced a week before the federal election um, to allow people to access a chunk of their super for housing. They did that one week before the poll and then were criticised in their review it was too late to have an impact. I noticed that the uh, children's savings accounts in New South Wales were two weeks behind. uh, Double the the time. So uh, late enough that low information voters will, will hear about it, but uh, early enough that there's time
1: to sell yeah. it between then and polling day. Well, it also reminds me, for I'm older, of Mark Latham's Medicare Gold. I think it's a bit of um, a tell that if you're in real trouble, that's when you pull the Hail Mary pass out. So maybe that's a little bit of a sign that the Liberals are seeking the miracle at the moment, but I don't think this was it. Thanks so much for the chat,
0: Peter. Uh, We'll see how the uh, polling numbers bear out in terms of a state election on on Saturday, uh, a referendum in the second half of the year, and then a $368 billion 50-year submarine acquisition. So we'll we'll be testing it at every point in the (laughs) timescale. Different timeframes. Thanks, Paul. Well, thank you for joining us, all you lovely people in Podland. This episode was produced by Mel Chun and Alison Chan. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We'll be back on Saturday with another episode. Thanks for listening.